Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, so today I want to start off uh, with a little bit of confession uh, on your part, not mine. You guys ready? All right. Uh, who loves movies? Movies? All right, I see some hands going up. There's probably more of you that are being a little shy. All right, uh, who's sports? Love watching sports, sports fans. All right, see some hands waving in the back, excited about sports. All right, now let's see who's honest here. Who loves to indulge in reality TV? All right, I see some a little more reluctant hands going up. All right, all right. Some of you guys aren't being honest. We'll need to talk about that later. Uh, you know I, know, I know the Nichols family, Pastor Brandon, they watch Survivor, right? That's not so bad. Uh, any Big Brother fans? No? All right. I thought that might be one. Love is Blind. That's a new one that some of the ladies are watching. Uh, Married at First Sight. That one's pretty wild. I see some hands going up. Uh, man, it seems like reality TV is most of our TV nowadays, and uh, it's it's like, is this really real? Is this really reality? Because it seems to often portray the worst in people, right? Uh, conflicts, bitterness, conniving, lying, immorality. And we like watch this stuff and it's like, is this, is this really real life? It makes us wonder about people. Well, Jess and I were watching a TV show a few weeks back. Um, what was it called? Uh, it was like 90s Rewind or something like that. It was like looking back at the decade of the 90s and seeing how the 90s culturally impacted us today. And each episode in this show had a different theme. So there was one about music of the 90s, one about politics of the 90s, one about technology. Then there was an episode about TV and movies. And this show made the case that really the 90s was this kind of birthplace of reality TV. And they talked about two catalysts for this happening, one being uh, the real world on MTV. Some of you guys might be familiar with the real world, right? Taking young adults and making them live in the house together. There was no contest, just they're just living together and putting cameras and watching how they interact. That was one. The other one was totally different. It was a talk show. It's a talk show that was hosted by the former mayor of my hometown, Cincinnati, Ohio, Anybody know the talk show that I'm talking about? Jerry Springer, the Jerry Springer Show, former mayor of Cincinnati. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with the Jerry Springer Show, I won't ask you to confess if you watch that, because then we might have to go into like a time of repentance. Uh, I, I wasn't a Christian then, so I came home from school and I watched it all the time. You know, it was okay. The Jerry Springer Show was wild, right? They would find the most just crazy guests often revolved around family drama, and they would bring them on this show, and they would just have it out. It was just immorality, adultery. There'd be fights. People would be throwing chairs, and the audience is just, Jerry, Jerry. It was, it was pretty crazy, right? And uh, the world kind of ate it up. I think it was on for over 20 years. Uh, at its peak, I mean, people were talking about the Jerry Springer show all the time. And that chaos of that show kind of shaped TV uh, today in the 2000s, in the 2010s, in the 2020s. It's easy to look back at reality TV or look at reality TV now or to turn on the news or even watch our current uh, presidential cycle and be like, the world is crazy. How is this reality? But really, 
drama, specifically dra- drama about human relationships, it's been unfolding for thousands and thousands of years. It's only recently did we start putting cameras in people's faces and people's houses and start watching it for entertainment. What we're going to see in our text today uh, is that the descendants of Abraham, right? Abraham is this family of promise, but his descendants are, they're kind of a hot mess. They are a family that would be perfect for the Jerry Springer show. So if you've been following along with us this year, right, we're continuing on as we're walking through this big narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And today we come to the story in Genesis of Joseph. And the story of Joseph will actually close out our time in the book of Genesis. Now this is two generations ahead of where Brandon left off last week when he kind of wrapped up Abraham's story. So quick context to kind of catch us up on where we're at. Right? God called this guy Abram, who would later be called Abraham, to, to come out of his land, to go to another land, and he made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him, that he was going to make him a great nation, and that through him he was going to be a blessing that the whole world would be blessed. So this promise that God made to Abraham is then passed on to his son Isaac, and then is passed on to his son Jacob. Jacob would become known as Israel. But this is kind of where uh, the drama starts increasing when we get to Jacob and and his family and Isaac's kids. Because Isaac had two sons, in fact, Esau and Jacob, and they were twins. But Esau came first, so he was the oldest, and therefore he was going to get the birthright and the blessing from his father. But as the drama begins to unfold, Jacob was mom's favorite, and she wants him to get the blessing and birthright, so he steals it from his brother. And then has to flee from the family. Uh, And then Jacob, so he has the blessing now. He has the promise. But then he goes back home to Abraham's hometown to find a wife. And things get really, really crazy. Instead of finding one wife, he finds two wives who are sisters in competition with each other. Kind of weird. But not just the two of them. He also gets their two kind of servants or their maids, right? And between these four women, Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons would be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. But with Jacob, he really only loved one wife, which was Rachel. And the two sons that he had with Rachel would end up being his favorite sons. And that brings us today to the story of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. Now, the story of Joseph unfolds over 13 chapters at the end of Genesis. What we're going to do today is we're going to walk kind of quickly through these 13 chapters and walk through this story of Joseph. And as the end, I think it kind of builds to a couple key truths to it for us that we'll see at the end of Genesis. So the story of Joseph picks up in Genesis chapter 37. So Joseph was number 11 out of 12 sons for Jacob. And because he was the first son born to Rachel, the wife that he truly loved, he was dad's favorite. So much so that he got treated very differently than his other siblings, right? Dad would use Joseph to go spy on his brothers. Like, hey, go check on your brothers. Make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and report back to me. He would get special gifts from his father and special treatments. He got a a robe of many colors that made him stand out from his brothers and his Ten half-brothers hated him for it. Now, Scripture 
They don't, it doesn't teach us this, but I'm sure a young 17-year-old Joseph, whose dad's favorite, probably wasn't super humble about this. In fact, we kind of see it come out a little bit in the story, but Joseph starts having these dreams. And Joseph interprets these dreams as that his family is going to bow down to him. Now, having the dreams is one thing, but he decides, well, I'm going to share this with my brothers. They'll probably think it's pretty cool. Uh, not so much. Not so much. These dreams made his brothers hate him all the more. So this hatred that they had for Joseph, for dad's favorite, would lead them to form a plot against him. They want to murder him. That's how much they hate him. And the next time Joseph was sent out by dad, hey, your brothers are pastoring the flock a few towns over. Go check on them. See what they're doing. Make sure they're doing the right thing. Come report back to me. Joseph's on his way to check on his brothers. His brothers see him coming in the distance like, man, here comes our punk little brother. Let's get this guy. I'm tired of it. So they're going to kill him. But at the last moment, Reuben, the eldest brother, steps in and says, let's not kill him. This isn't going to end good for us. There's a big hole in the ground over here. There's a pit. There's an empty well. Let's throw him in this pit. Now, you might think like, well, Reuben's like, he's being a good big brother. He's standing up for his little brother. Not really. Reuben's just trying to be like, I'm going to rescue him out of the pit so I can find some favor with dad. I'll be the, you know, rescued the favorite son. So maybe I'll be the second favorite. So they throw him in the pit, take his coat off of him. And then they're all hanging out, just eat, eating some lunch while Joseph is down in the pit. We hear later in the story that he's actually pleading for his life while he's down in the pit. But here in, the, in, in chapter 37, doesn't say anything about that. But he's pleading for his life while they're eating lunch and he's in the pit. Well, at some point, Reuben must wander away to go check on the flocks. Uh, and the rest of the brothers are like, you know what? Forget Reuben. Let's not kill him, though. Let's just get rid of him. And at this time, there was a caravan of traders passing by. So a new plot forms. We're just going to sell him. We don't have to kill him. We'll get rid of him. We'll sell him to these traders. And that's what they do. Sell him into slavery. Reuben comes back and is like, what have you guys done? What are we going to tell dad? His favorite son is gone. So they take his coat that they stripped off of him when they threw him in the pit, kill an animal, get it all bloody, come back to dad. Hey, dad, isn't, is, is this the coat you gave Joseph? Look what we found, right? It's, oh, no, something happened to Joseph. So Jacob goes in the morning thinking his son has been killed by an animal. All the while, he is on his way to Egypt as a slave. And part two of the story of Joseph picks up in chapter 39 in Genesis in Egypt, in the house of a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Joseph is sold as a slave, as a servant, into the house of this guy, Potiphar. But in chapter 39, verse 2, we see an important phrase for the first time in the life of Joseph, and it says, the Lord was with him. So even though something terrible would happen, God was still with him. Because of this, we, he would find blessing wherever he went. He'd find blessing in Potiphar's house. Apparently, he was a pretty exceptional young man, and Potiphar would eventually elevate him to the highest servant in the house and give him control of almost everything in his house except his wife. But treachery would find Joseph again, this time in the form of Potiphar's wife. 
And she must have taken a, a liking to this young Hebrew man that was in her house all the time. And she began to make advances towards Joseph. Joseph, doing the right thing, rebuffed her, but she kept coming. Until in frustration, this woman lashes out, well, if I can't have you, then you're going to be gone. And she concocts a lie against Jacob that he, or against Joseph, that he is the one making these advances. So Potiphar does the only thing he can do and throws him in prison. But again, when Joseph finds himself in prison, we see this phrase, the Lord was with him. Now, Joseph must have been such a model prisoner that the warden began to put Joseph in charge of the day-to-day operations of the prison. He's like, this guy's awesome. I don't have to do anything. You take care of all this business for me. So Joseph is running the show in the prison. While he's there, two prisoners, uh, he comes across two prisoners. One is the royal cupbearer, and the other is the royal baker. Now, we don't know exactly what landed these two men in prison, but we can kind of infer from the story that there might have been a potential poisoning attempt against the royal family. What Scripture does tell us, though, in chapter 40, is that each of these two men have a dream, and they don't know what it means. And they turn to Joseph to help them interpret their dreams. And Joseph, because the Lord is with him, is able to correctly interpret these dreams, So the cupbearer, he receives a favorable interpretation from Joseph. He says, you're going to be taken out of prison. You're going to get your position restored. You'll be back with Pharaoh in a couple days. In return for this, Joseph's like, hey, when you get back with Pharaoh, could you please remember me? Like, I'm innocent. I'm here in prison. Could you help me out? Now, the baker, his interpretation doesn't go so well. Uh, In fact, three days later, he's dead, executed. He must have been the one trying to kill some, poison somebody. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that, but he is executed. But unfortunately for Joseph, the cupbearer, whether intentionally or unintentionally, forgets about him, and he would spend another two years in prison. But rescue would come, and Joseph again would have the opportunity to interpret dreams. See, dreams were held in high regard for Egyptians, so much so that Pharaoh would have on his staff dedicated dream interpreters. Well, time would come when Pharaoh would have dreams that needed to be interpreted. None of his people knew what they meant, and they, he was greatly troubled by these dreams that he was having. What he didn't realize is that these dreams that he was having of healthy cows and sick cows and the sick cows eating the healthy cows and healthy grain and sick grain and the sick grain eating the healthy grain is that There was going to be a time of prosperity for the nation, followed by a time of famine. When the the cupbearer, after two years, sees that Pharaoh is bothered that nobody can interpret his dreams, he's like, oh, I remember this guy in prison. You should talk to him. He's really good at interpreting dreams. So Joseph gets called up to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph, in his humbleness, says, I can't interpret dreams, but God can. So God gives Joseph the interpretation about the coming famine that would be preceded by the seven years of abundance. But he didn't just interpret the dream. He took advantage of this time that he had with Pharaoh and says, this is what it means, but this is also what you should do. You need to appoint 
managers of the land throughout the, the governors throughout the, the nation, and you need to harvest the grain and store it up and, and take count and be prepared for the famine that's coming. Well, much like Potiphar and the warden of the prison, Pharaoh was impressed with Joseph. And he elevates him out of the prison and elevates him to his right-hand man. He's like, that's a great idea. You manage all of this for me. So at 30 years old, the man who was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, and forgotten about, was now governing one of the most powerful kingdoms on earth. But the plot thickens. Right? See, this coming famine wasn't just going to affect Egypt. It was going to affect the whole eastern Mediterranean region, which includes the land of Canaan, which is where he is from and which is where his family is at. So the time passes of prosperity and the seven years of famine begins in the land of Canaan. And Jacob sends his 10 eldest sons. Hey, I hear that there's somebody running the show in Egypt and they got some food. Go down there and buy us some food so we don't die. Now, by this point, after all the time that Joseph's been away, it's probably been close to 22 years since he has seen his family. So his brothers show up and say, hey, we want to buy some grain They don't recognize their brother. But he surely remembers them, the men that tried to kill him, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. What unfolds between Genesis chapter 42 and Genesis chapter 46 is Joseph putting his brothers through a series of tests. Now, this might seem a little bit deceptive, and what doesn't seem deceptive, it is deceptive of Joseph, but it's not malicious. Right? Joseph is trying to find out, are these still the murderous brothers who tried to kill me, who sold me into slavery? All right? He's trying to figure out, have they changed? Is my father still alive? Is my younger full brother still alive? Did they kill him too? Did they sell him into slavery too? So jo- Joseph accuses them of being spies. He's like, to prove yourselves, leave one of you here, go back and get your little brother Benjamin and bring him here. And if you prove yourself to be telling the truth, then I'll trade with you. So they leave Simeon, one of the older brothers in Egypt, go back, nine brothers go back to dad, say, dad, this is what happened. This guy wants us to bring Benjamin. He said, if we bring Benjamin, then he'll believe us and he'll trade with us. And dad's like, no, 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 no. I already lost my one favorite son. I'm not sending my other favorite son with you knuckleheads now. I guess he didn't really care about Simeon so much because he was willing to leave Simeon in Egypt. But, right, we're still in a famine. The famine is raging on. So eventually, Judah's like, Dad, we have to buy food from Egypt. We need to go back. You need to let us take Benjamin. So Jacob relents, gives in to Benjamin traveling to Egypt. They return to Joseph, and Joseph welcomes them in. Hey, you guys weren't lying. You're not spies. Come in. He feeds them. He trades with them. But he has one final test for them. He wanted to see if they would sacrifice Benjamin to save themselves. So for the final test, as the men were preparing to leave to go back to the land of Canaan, Joseph stashes a silver cup in Benjamin's belongings, making it appear as if he had stolen it. And as they prepare to leave, they accuse him of theft just to see how they act. Are they going to throw Benjamin under the bus? He's the thief. 
But what happens as the plot is exposed is maybe different than what you would expect from the beginning of the story. See, the brothers actually beg for forgiveness, and they plead for the life of their younger brother. It's a far cry from how they treated Joseph. But evidence maybe that they had changed. So this leads us to this big reveal where Joseph is overwhelmed by emotion, reveals himself to his brothers as the brother they sold into slavery. And this scares them and freaks them out, right? This guy in Egypt who's so powerful is the guy like we tried to kill and sell into slavery. This isn't going to go well for us. But Joseph reassures them, says, hey, go get the family, go get dad, go get everybody, bring them down here. I will take care of you. And that's what happens. The rest of the family would leave Canaan, move to Egypt, settle in the land of Goshen there. And the tribe of Israel would stay there for hundreds of years. They would grow in the land. And Jacob or Israel himself would eventually die there 17 years later. Now, it's easy to walk through this story very quickly like this and on the surface think that, man, Joseph was faithful in the hard times and he was blessed because of it. Man, this story is about if I remain faithful, man, prosperity is coming my way. Faith equals prosperity. Joseph's prosperity was not the point of the story. I think what the story is pointing us to is is it's pointing us to God's promises, right? God made a promise to these people. And it's pointing us to God's providence that, right, when God says he's going to do something, it's going to happen. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God makes a promise to the woman at the fall, right, that a seed is going to come from her to crush the serpent. And through this providence of God, this plan of redemption begins to unfold, It leads us to the flood and to Noah, where God makes another promise to Noah and blesses him. And through providence, we get to Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham, the promise to make him a great nation that would be blessed and that it would be a blessing to others. And that through him, all the nations would be blessed. So this promise is passed down the line of Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob with God's providence leading the way. Joseph, he himself affirms this for us twice in this story. In Genesis chapter 45 and verse 5, as he's revealing himself to his brothers and they're freaked out, thinking he's going to exact revenge, he says, don't be grieved or angry with yourself for selling me here. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Providence because of a promise. God was going to preserve their life because he made a promise to Abraham. Then again, in chapter 50, Jacob uh, or Israel has died. Joseph's brothers are thinking he's about to, dad's dead. Uh, He's finally going to get some payback on us since he's not here to protect us anymore. Let's park here in these last few verses of Genesis chapter 50 for a minute. Uh, starting in chap- uh, verse 15. Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead. They said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent the message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. 
Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when he received their message. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. Just like the dream when he was 17. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You planned evil, but God planned good. God promised these people that they would survive and become a great nation. And through his providence, we see that unfolding here. Now, one of the great ironies, I think, of this narrative, and it's, it's easy to miss, is that the promise is not passed down through Joseph. In fact, Joseph's lineage would be lost when the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed thousands of years later. But instead, the promise would go to another son, not the oldest son, not the youngest son, not Joseph. The promise would go through Judah. God would make a covenant with him. And that would go to David. God would make a promise to him. And that leads us to Jesus. See, Joseph was just the instrument of God's providence. John MacArthur says this on God's providence. He says, providence is a term that has to do with God not interfering with the normal process of life. God's not interfering with the normal process of life, but he's orchestrating all of those contingencies, all of those thoughts, all of those actions to affect exactly what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, where he wants. So like a great conductor, God is orchestrating the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the Jerry Springer moments in our families and the moments of joy. He's orchestrating them all together to produce his will. And if we look at the original language, the Hebrew in verse 20, where Joseph said, you planned, but God planned. This word planned, hashav in Hebrew, literally means to weave together, to weave So while his brothers and Potiphar's wife were weaving evil into his life, God is taking it and weaving it into his grand plan of redemption because he made a a promise because of his providence. That's the good news of this narrative and the beauty of this narrative is that God can use a broken world full of broken people to weave together his plans. We see that play out time and time again in Scripture. We can see that play out in our own lives. So then the question is, how do we respond today? Because we're not part of this family. We have to remember that we are on the other side of this promise. God kept his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The Messiah came from the line of Judah and the house of David. But that's not our promise. We're part of another promise. And I just want to leave you with these two things on the other side of the promise is faith and grace. You see, the reward for faith is God, not prosperity. 
God is the reward for our faith. But our world today, our culture today would say that we should idolize the rewards that Joseph obtained, right? The power, the wealth, the prosperity, those are the rewards. But faith was his greatest strength. We have access to that same tangible, visceral faith because of stories like this. Brandon said last week that our our faith is not a blind faith. People always want to accuse Christians of having blind faith, but we get to look back at the promises of God and the providence of God at work in the people of God, and we can grab hold of that. That's something real and tangible, not blind. So when we find ourselves in the pit or in prison or falsely accused or when we're struggling with the trials of life and we're overwhelmed, we can grab hold of our faith and remember the promises of God. Not the promises of this story. Remember, those have already been fulfilled. We get the promises of Jesus. And that is... Through the gift of faith, we are adopted into the family of God. That we have obtained an eternal inheritance. He promises that we will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. He promises to all those that come to him that he will give us rest. He is faithful. He will give us to forgive our sins and trespasses. He will lead us. He will teach us. He will guide us. He will love us. And one day he will raise us up from the suffering of the world and restore us in his father's house for all eternity. The prosperity of Joseph, as great as it was, does not hold a candle to the promises of Jesus. And that is the power of faith. Jesus is the reward of our faith. Where is your faith when you're in the pit? When it feels like you're in the prison? Where you're in the Jerry Springer show? Where is your faith at? And lastly, I think this is easy to look past in this story as well, but we should be people that are marked by grace. Joseph demonstrated immense grace in forgiving the men who tried to kill him, men who sold him into slavery. We hold on to grudges for much less nowadays. But Joseph's grace was a saving grace. His family would have likely perished, right? The promise would have been broken if not for God's providence through Joseph. But Joseph's grace, Joseph's grace points us to another's. It points us to the cross. It points us to Jesus where God's providence with another man who was also falsely accused would pour out grace, not just for one family, but for the whole world. For you and for me, Jesus was sent to the cross. Jesus was sent on a mission of grace. And now the church is the instrument of that grace to the world. So just as Joseph was an instrument to achieve the promise to Abraham, you are an instrument for God to pour out his grace on the world. And that is the good news of the gospel the good news of Jesus, that God is so rich in grace that he poured it out for the world, not just for this people or that people, before the world. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, reminds them of this. He says, the gift is not like the trespass. 
For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Man, we are to be people marked by grace. Um, mission is one of our core values here at Mercy Hill. If you didn't know that, if you're new with us or you just haven't heard it yet, and we want to be a church that is on mission together. But the mission will not succeed without grace. So I think the application here for all of us today, including myself, is how can we be more gracious? How can we be more like Jesus? In your relationships, in your marriages, in your families, in your workplaces, with your neighbors, all the way to the nations, how can we be more grace-giving like our Savior? I can't answer that question for you, right? That's, that's some heart-level examination with God. But my hope and my prayer for you and for our church is that we would be a people overflowing with grace and on a mission to share the promises of God to our neighbors and the nations, trusting that the providence of God is going to go before us. Have you experienced that grace? Do you have that tangible faith that you can grab onto, receiving that gift of grace from Jesus? I want to pray for you guys as we uh, wrap up this morning. Man, if you haven't experienced that gift yet, man, I, I pray that today would be the day that you would surrender to Christ, that you would receive the gift of his grace the gift of Jesus, better than any prosperity the world can ever offer, better than any reality that we have today. We get the promise of eternity. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.